God speaks to us in his word in Mark 14, 1 through 26. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial, and truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hey, let's, uh, let's just say thank you so much for that reading this morning. It's so good. Um, you can clap, that's appropriate. That was 26 verses. We, we talked like, maybe, maybe we should have her read the whole rest of the book of Mark. And then we're like, no, 26 verses is just fine. That'll do. That'll do for this morning. Hey, thank you for doing that. It's not easy to read in front of a group of people. Um, hey, I don't know how funny I am, as Ben mentioned, but the reason I always want to eat where he wants to eat is because I find a way to make him pay. And so if you want to pay for my lunch today, I'll eat whatever you want to eat too. Uh, but anyway, I'm really glad to be with you guys today. As he mentioned, one of the pastors downtown, and it is always a treat. You guys are always so kind. You're always so hospitable and welcoming to me. And so to get to spend a Sunday with you is a lot of fun. So open to the passage that was just read, Mark chapter 14, verses 1 to 26, and uh, we'll jump in and get to work today. You pray for me, I'll pray for you, and we'll see how God would shape us. 
I want to offer you just a moment to, to offer your own prayer to God, whatever's there on your heart, and just simply ask him today to help you hear from him. Pray for the people on either side of you and ask that God would, they would hear his voice today, that they'd be shaped of his, as his sons and daughters. Jesus, we believe that you speak perfectly as we open your word. And for all the ways that we come into this room today, um, anxious or distracted or disinterested even, for the ways that we come in, maybe even some of us expectant, however we're here, you know exactly how to handle us and you know exactly how to speak to us. And I pray, I pray even now, Holy Spirit, would you fill this, would you fill these next 30 minutes with your presence, with your help, with your illumination. Father, would you hold our attention and we offer this prayer in Jesus' name. We all said, amen, amen. Well, it's crazy to think about the fact that two years ago this last week is when the whole world shut down with the COVID-19 virus. It was when sort of collectively as a culture we pulled the e-brake, you know, Rudy Gobert in Oklahoma City uh, getting everybody sick and then we all just sort of freaked out collectively and there was no March Madness a couple of years ago we were all just in madness, you know what I mean? Uh, and there was a crazy thing for all of us, but for my wife and I, we, we love to host people in our home. We love to have people over for meals. We love to throw dinner parties. If it's a good day, let's have a dinner party. If it's a bad day, let's have a dinner party. If it's Monday, sounds fine. It's not the weekend, but let's have a dinner party. We, we love having people over to our house, but that was not a popular thing to do during during the madness of COVID-19, right? Like holidays were shut down and dinner parties were shut down. But isn't it true that when we get together with friends to share a good meal, that things start to open up in those moments that maybe they don't open up in other kinds, right? Conversations tend to happen over a meal with good friends or family or neighbors, and you end up talking about things that you don't otherwise maybe talk about. Maybe you start sharing things about life and about joys and things you're celebrating, but there's sometimes even over meals like that where you start to say, I wasn't even planning on talking about this tonight, now I'm finding myself talking about this because somehow after you're full with a good meal, your heart is also full with the people around the table and you just start feeling the freedom and the safety to share things that you might not otherwise. When Mark 14, we open up and we cut from the last scene of the conversation we've been having in Mark 13, the last several weeks, about the destruction of the temple. And where we open up in Mark 14, Jesus is at a dinner party. Jesus is sitting around the table with a group of friends, and the guest list at this dinner party is actually quite strange. Let me give you the rundown of who's at this party. There is an ex-dead man at the party. Lazarus has just been raised from the dead. That would have been an interesting person to sit over a meal with. You have a couple of ex-tax collectors there, a couple of ex-thieves, you have a group of former fishermen who probably talked like sailors. You have one known as the betrayer who was at the table. And then there's a woman also at this meal who had brought with her to the dinner party a jar of burial ointment. And then the one who's hosting this party is a guy known as Simon the leper, which is not how you want to be known for the rest of history, right? Um, probably better known as Simon the former leper, uh, because you might not have otherwise taken the invitation to his party. And so I don't know what you think about your community group. Maybe you think your community group is a bunch of strange people. I can guarantee you this was a group of stranger people, right? 
Uh, this group of people had nothing in common. If, it was, if it's awkward for you on Tuesday night when your group gets together, it was more awkward for this group that Jesus had assembled this night. And there's a lot to cover in the 26 verses that we have in front of us today, um, but it's all going to happen around the context of a dinner party. One of them is, is, is the one I've just kind of captured for you here, and then there's a second dinner party at the end of the passage that maybe you're more familiar with. But I do want to say this as we jump in. But the two, the two stories, these two dinner parties that we're going to look at today are some of the most breathtaking and vulnerable moments in the life of Jesus before he goes to his suffering. This passage of scripture this week has been, frankly, a bit intimidating for me to sit with and to prepare and think about preaching because it's one of those passages where you're just, I'm just afraid I'm not going to do justice to it. Like I just want us to see it for all that's here. And, and I know by God's help, he'll get us there, but but I bring with me a bit of tenderness knowing that this, this is just some breathtaking stuff that we're gonna look at today. So there's three things I want us to see and then we'll jump into it. Jesus is the new temple. Jesus is the new sacrifice. And Jesus is the true king. The new temple, the new sacrifice, and the true king. Let's jump in with the new temple. In verses three to nine, we have maybe the clearest passage, the clearest picture in all of the Bible as to what pure and simple devotion to Jesus looks like? What, what, what does just honest love to Jesus look like? Three, three to nine, give us that. But there's some irony and tragedy mixed into all of this. There's this extravagant act of love offered to Jesus that we'll look at in just a second. But it's smashed between extravagant acts of hate to Jesus. Extravagant love is sandwiched between extravagant hate. The, verses, the chapter opens with verses one and two and the religious leaders are seeking to arrest Jesus by stealth. They're seeking to be deceptive and manipulative and to snuff out the life of this Galilean rabbi. They want nothing to do with him, and they're seeking by stealth to have him arrested. And then on the other side of this passage, in verses 10 and 11, it captures the decision of Judas to work with those religious leaders and to actually accomplish the stealth from the inside through betrayal. But amidst all the darkness, there's this ray of light in the middle. Pick up with me in verse three. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, reclining at table, he's at dinner, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and she poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, they were irate, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, hey, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me, for you will always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could, and she's anointed my body beforehand for burial, and truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. There, there is so much we could unpack from these verses, but there's just a couple of things I want us to see. One's gonna require us to zoom out from this passage to get sort of a wide-angle lens of what's happening here, and the other will require us to zoom back in. If we're gonna understand what Mark wants us to see from this passage, you've gotta see it in the full scope and the full flow of the narrative to this point. It's not just sort of randomly placed here after the temple destruction narrative. One scholar picks it up like this. There's a story about a woman who gives generously to the temple, but it's going to be destroyed. That's the end of Mark 12 with that poor widow giving her last two cents. 
story about a woman who gives generously to the temple, but it's about to be destroyed. And then immediately following chapter 13, where Jesus condemns the temple, there's another story about another woman who gives generously to Jesus, but he too is about to be destroyed. The difference is that Jesus is going to be raised from the dead as God's true temple. And so it's not random that this whole section that's been revolving around the temple would have these stories of these two ladies that serve as bookends. Throughout the whole Bible, the temple holds this prominent place where heaven meets earth. The the, the Old Testament narrative is all about the temple as the place where man meets with God. So you think about even in the beginning with the garden, Adam and Eve are placed there in this perfect creation, this garden temple, as it were, and God walks with them in the cool of the day. They meet with God in this beautiful sanctuary that he created for them. You move out from the garden after sin enters in the world, and you have Moses leading the people of Israel with the tent of meeting where Moses would talk to man face to, Moses would talk to God face to face as man talks with a friend. You move out from the tent of meeting, you get the tabernacle where God comes and he fills it with his glory. And you move out from there and you have the first temple with King Solomon. But with the arrival of Jesus, where the central meeting place of God with man was this temple, this physical place and building, it now shifts. Now the meeting place of God with man is no longer a place, but it's a person. Jesus is now the new temple. Jesus is the place where you and I meet with God. We don't go to some physical place. We don't go on a pilgrimage. We come to a person. And the woman in this story understands this about Jesus, that he's the place where the heart and the presence of God, the Father, is to be found. And she understands it so much that she offers the most valuable thing that she has to him. John chapter 12 captures this same dinner party, and we learn there that this woman in the story is Mary, the sister of Lazarus. He's just been raised from the dead, and this dinner party was likely a celebration of the fact that, oh my gosh, Lazarus has just got up out of the grave at the command of Jesus. I guess we should eat a meal together. Right? This is a dinner party because of the miracle of new life they had just witnessed, and the oil in the flask that she's brought to the dinner party is most likely what she would have used for her brother. The burial ointment that was a part of the Jewish burial practices had he not been raised from the dead. And now she breaks it open. She transfers her brokenness that was once toward her brother, now it's toward Jesus. The sadness that was about the loss of her brother now is about the sadness that she transfers to Jesus because now she's become undone and it hits her. The reality is that Jesus has just rescued her brother from the grave, but he's about to go to his own grave. The life that Jesus just offered to her brother is one that he's about now to offer his own life, and she begins to anoint him with this costly oil with tears. There's really the shadows here of substitution. It's life for life. It's death for death. There's the early echoes of Jesus being our substitute. And Jesus says here, that she's prepared him for burial. So what's happening is that Mary is identifying herself with Jesus and his death, even at great cost to her. Whatever it's gonna cost me to identify myself with this man, even in his suffering, I'll do it. And the irony of this is this is exactly what his disciples, his closest people to him, they keep avoiding this topic. They keep disassociating from this topic. They wanna talk nothing about his death. 
In fact, there's this really awkward moment in the midst of the dinner party when she offers this to him. The disciples scold her. What are you doing? Why, why, why would you waste this expensive ointment like this? Don't you know this could have been sold and given to the poor as though they, that's what they actually cared about? I can't help but think that they had the moment with the poor widow still ringing in their ears. When they think about the old temple system that was taking advantage of her and how that should have helped her and not demanded from her, now they're looking at this going, well, that, that, that could have been for the poor. They're, they're trying to pick up where Jesus leaves off. But the old temple, the old temple demanded from the poor and it devoured them, but the new temple is different. Jesus, the new temple, he is the place where the poor are invited to meet God. He is the place and the one that is devoured in the place of the poor, not them. Remember the words of Jesus? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the whole kingdom of heaven. The second thing I want us to see here it requires us to zoom back in. There's a theme of brokenness in this passage, thick, just like the temple. This woman offers all that she has. Jesus said that she did all that she could possibly do. But notice this, guys. It was an act of love to Jesus given through brokenness. She didn't just sort of take the flask in a dignified way and unspin the cap and then pour it out in some sort of orderly manner. It says that she broke the whole thing open, which means there's no more reusing this. It, it, it didn't have a second use. So we learn here that it was an expensive ointment, 300 denarii. So in their, in their moment, that was a year's worth of earnings. This would have been like a savings account for her. This would have been um, like a safety net, a covering, so that if she couldn't make ends meet all of a sudden, if, if somehow she, she was financially broke or some famine or drought happened in the land, she could sell this or trade this and she could, and she could survive. But not after this night. It could have been that way, but not after this night. What she's saying to Jesus is this. You're worth everything that I have. You're my covering for the dark day. You're my covering for the dark day. This used to be the most valuable thing that I had to my name. But now you are the most valuable thing that I have to my name. There is nothing else to me that makes me me more than you. You're the place where I meet God. You are my new temple. You're the place where the love of the Father is accessible to me. And there is nothing that I have that's more valuable than that. You see why this is so breathtaking? There's nothing that I have more valuable than access to the love of the Father. And the thing that I love in this passage is that there's nothing about this woman's offering, there's nothing about her brokenness that was stupid to Jesus. It was stupid to everybody else. It looked ridiculous. They scolded her. They were indignant. Why are you wasting it? Like There was nothing about her offering that was stupid to Jesus. Nothing about it that was foolish. I'm sure that this was a really celebratory dinner party. Lazarus had just been raised from the dead. I'm sure this was a really awkward moment in the midst of all of it. But there was nothing about her offering that was off-putting or inconvenient to Jesus. In fact, the end of this passage says that from this moment forward, this woman will be 
the example. This woman will be actually the model. She will be the template for how everyone else after her will meet Jesus. Notice what he says in verse nine. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will be told in memory of her. What that means is this. When you come to Jesus, you don't come put together. She certainly didn't. And you'll do it like her. When you come to Jesus, you don't come measured. Well, I'm gonna you know, come with, I'm gonna say these sorts of things and I'm gonna withhold these sorts of things and I'm gonna do it this certain way and it's gonna look super religious. And No, you don't come measured to Jesus. She certainly didn't. And you'll do it like her. You don't bring your best self to Jesus. She certainly didn't. She just brought what she had. And she brought it from the place she had it. And you'll do it like her. The only acceptable way to come to Jesus is just the way this woman came to Jesus. She didn't come put together. She didn't come measured. She didn't bring her best self. She just brought what she had. And Jesus loved it. This is how you come to the new temple. This is how you come to God. But the second thing I want you to see is that Jesus is the new sacrifice. This passage, it moves from one dinner party to another. It moves from the new temple to the new sacrifice. Verse 12 tells us that this was the time of the Passover. So what's about to happen is that Jesus moves to a different table, and he's going to take this ancient liturgy that was practiced by the Jewish people for generations, and he's going to reinterpret the whole thing. The Passover was this special feast that observed that sort of defining moment in the nation of Israel when God delivered them from slavery to Egypt. In particular, it's it's all about the night when God came in divine judgment against Egypt. Remember the night where Moses told Israel, if you're gonna survive this night, God's coming in judgment. It's gonna require you to kill a lamb. Prepare it for dinner, but take the blood of the sacrifice and place it on the outer doorposts of your house. And when God comes in judgment against Egypt, The only way that you're gonna survive judgment is to trust what he provided. You're not gonna survive God's judgment because of your race, Jewish and not Egyptian. You're not gonna survive God's judgment because of your morality, that you're good and they're bad. You're not gonna survive God's judgment because of your religion, you worship Yahweh and they worship Pharaoh. None of that has anything to do with God's judgment. You'll survive God's judgment because you trust what he provided. You come underneath the blood of the lamb. And so this is the Passover meal. This meal had a very particular order and form to it. It went a certain way, and every piece of the evening and every piece of the meal was meant to teach them and remind them of just how faithful God is to rescue and to save. And so the traditional Passover feast would have had the table set with unleavened bread, there would have been fruit and herbs, there would have been wine, and there would have been at the center of the table a lamb representing what happened on that night of judgment. And all of this was symbolic as a part of the story. But on this night, Jesus shifted everything. Jesus took the bread, and what they were expecting is what had been said when someone takes the bread, the presider over the meal for generations. They would say, this is the bread of affliction that our fathers ate in the wilderness. Take and eat. But notice with me what happens in verse 22. And as they were eating, he took the bread, and after blessing it, he broke it. And he gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, 
And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And so Jesus jumps the script here. And what he said would have been shocking to everyone in the room. He takes the bread, and he says, this is not the bread of affliction that our fathers ate. This is the bread of my affliction, and it's broken for you. He takes the cup, and he says, this is the blood of the covenant, and this is not a promise that you're making to me. This is a promise that I'm making to you. This is the new sacrifice. It's not a sacrifice that I'm asking you guys to make to me. This is actually a sacrifice that I'm making to you. Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, makes this insightful observation. When Jesus Christ got up to bless the food that night, it was the weirdest Passover in history. Do you know why? When he blesses the food, you can see what foods he blessed. There's the bread, and all Passover meals had bread. There's the wine, and all Passover meals had wine, but not one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, ever talks about there being present a main course. There's no mention of a lamb being there. Why wasn't there a lamb? Of course you know why, don't you? There was no lamb on the table because the lamb of God was at the table. Jesus was the main course. That's the reason why when John the Baptist saw Jesus for the first time, he said, now that is the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Jesus was the one presiding over the feast that night, but he's also the one offering himself as the feast. He holds up the bread and he says to his friends, take and eat. This is my body that's broken for you. And what he's saying is, I'm the new lamb. I'm the new lamb. I'm your covering. He holds up the cup of wine and he says, this is my blood and this is the new covenant that I'm going to keep. That's significant because in the Old Testament, every time a covenant was made, it was sealed by a blood sacrifice. And the blood sacrifice was as if to say, I'm going to keep this covenant even if it kills me. I'm going to keep this covenant even if it requires my own blood. And so when Jesus holds up the cup, he's saying, I'm making this covenant and I'm going to keep this covenant and it's going to require my own blood. This is the new Passover. Like, this is the new Exodus. Like, this is the new deliverance. This is the deliverance we've all been asking for. This wasn't just about sort of coming out of slavery to Egypt. This is coming out of slavery to sin. This is about a deeper kind of slavery that you and I can't just get out of on our own or by any effort. We need someone else to come in and to get it out of us. We got ourselves into this situation, but we can't get ourselves out. We need a rescuer. This is the new Passover. This is the new exodus. This is the new deliverance. And this is the new sacrifice. And so do you see now these two dinner parties? It's not like these are just sort of the greatest hits of Jesus following the temple narrative. These are placed here on purpose. If the first story in this passage is about an extravagant act of love to Jesus through brokenness, the second story in this passage is about an extravagant act of love from the Father in the breaking of his son for the sins of many. Church, I want you to hear this today. Something I've been trying to swallow as I'm studying this passage. The breaking of the son of God is more than enough to cover you in your moment of breaking. 
I say that, right? And as church people, we know that, but we don't know that in our chest because we still try to cover up those weak places. We still try to cover up those places of deficiency and that we don't think that God wants to see. But what this passage is shouting to us is don't cover them up anymore. Let your weakness breathe. Let, your, let those places that you don't want to be found out, let them be exposed. Because the breaking of the Son of God is more than enough to cover you in your moment of breaking. The new temple, Jesus is the place we meet God. He is the new sacrifice, but it's not a sacrifice that we offer to him, although it feels like it should be, doesn't it? But it's actually a sacrifice that he offers, he offers to us. I wanna finish this this morning with the third point. Jesus, the new temple, Jesus, the new, the new sacrifice, and lastly, Jesus, the true king. I don't know if you recognized it when the passage was being read this morning, but in between these two dinner parties, there's this strange string of verses about how the Passover was gonna be prepared. Jesus says to his disciples, I want you to go into the city, and you're gonna find this guy carrying a jar of water. And they're probably thinking, okay, <laughs> I want you to go, you're gonna find this guy carrying a jar of water and you're gonna follow him. And it's not gonna be creepy, I promise, but you're gonna follow him and he's gonna turn around and ask you, why are you following me? As any person that is being followed would ask. And you're supposed to say to him, my master has need of your house. And then he'll know exactly what you're talking about and he'll go, well, by all means, have my house, right? Now, if you're reading that, you're like, that is a strange, what was that going on here? But it sounds almost exactly like another moment, a few chapters earlier, when Jesus enters into Jerusalem. Before they enter in, he says, hey guys, we're gonna, I'm gonna stop here. I want you guys to go into the city, and I want you to find a particular young mule that's not hitched to a hitching post. And they're thinking, okay. And when you find this young mule, I want you to take it. And someone's gonna say, hey, why are you taking that mule? And you're supposed to say, because my master has need of it. And they'll go, well, by all means. Take the mule. And it says in that passage, just like it says in this one, the disciples go and do it, and they find it exactly as he said it was going to be. Now, what's happening here? This strange little string of verses, what's happening? I love this. Mark is trying to show us that in the midst of absolute chaos breaking loose on Jesus, it feels like his attackers are winning. They're hunting him by stealth. One of his own is betraying him from the inside. It feels like everything is closing in on Jesus and suffocating him. And what Mark is trying to show us with these two little moments is that in the midst of all of it, there's not a single moment where his life is being taken from him. There's not a single moment where he's out of control. There's not a single moment where he's freaking out and wondering what's happening, these moments are to show us that everything is happening exactly according to the plan of the Father. His life isn't being taken from him, he's laying it down. And he also has the power to take it back up again. And here's something even more breathtaking than that. Jesus has his own betrayer at his last meal. And he offers his betrayer at his last meal the food that will give him energy to eventually betray him. 
Jesus offers his own betrayer at his last meal the same hospitality that he offers to everybody else. What kind of security is that? That is, that is the definition of confidence in the plans of God. And that's why he's the true king. Like that's why he's the true king. Listen, he's not asking his people to defend him. He's not asking his people, his disciples, you and me, he's not asking us to stand up for him. He's not asking us to protect him. In fact, he's the true king, which means he's there to defend us. He's there to stand up for us. He's there to protect us. He's not asking us, hey guys, they're after me. Why don't you sacrifice yourselves for me? No, 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 he's saying they're after me and I'm gonna sacrifice myself for you. He's the true king, man. So a couple of points of application today. Jesus is the new temple. He's the place where we meet God. A couple of questions here. Is there any place that you're avoiding him? The answer is yes, I'm asking where. Me too. Where are you avoiding him and why are you refusing to come to him? He's the place where you meet God. You don't have to turn up the music in your car on the commute anymore. You don't have to busy yourself to numb yourself anymore. You don't have to keep looking for coping mechanisms. The new temple is available to you. Not a place, but a person. Why are you avoiding him? The second question, do you really believe that he'll receive you in your brokenness? And if you're like me, the answer is, I don't really believe that, which is why I still keep covering myself over so the question is, if not, why not? Do you realize in Scripture, there's all kinds of broken people that come to God? All kinds of them. The Bible's littered with broken people coming to God. And there is never, capital N-E-V-E-R, never a moment when he shuns a broken person. Never. Let your brokenness breathe and let him heal. The second question, Jesus is the new sacrifice, which means there's nothing left to prove and there's no more blood to be shed. Where in your life do you still feel like you have to prove yourself to God as though Jesus isn't enough? That is littered in the water of Bible Belt Christianity, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Like I know Jesus and the whole thing, but I gotta prove myself to God. I gotta show him that I mean it. I gotta show him that he's worth it and that I'm still, I gotta show him. I gotta dot all my religious I's and cross all the T's. I gotta have all things, cover myself over, make sure I have my conservative values and my family in order and I'm proving myself to God. I'm, no, 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 listen, you don't prove anything to God. That's what the new sacrifice is all about. Jesus proves you before the Father, not you. Second question, though, where do you feel in your life like you still have to beat yourself up in order to be worthy of forgiveness as though Jesus isn't enough? That, too, is littered in the water of Bible Belt Christianity. If you're not proving yourself, you're beating yourself up. If you're not beating yourself up, you're proving yourself, right? 
There's parts of yourself that you hate. There's parts of yourself that you wanna get rid of. There's parts of yourself that you think you have to get rid of if you're ever gonna be worthy of forgiveness. And maybe if I just hate myself enough or hate that place in my life enough, then finally God will say, they've treated themselves poorly enough that I can now forgive them. But what the new sacrifice suggests is, why are you beating yourself up? Jesus was already beaten up in your place. Why are you still lashing yourself? Don't you know that he took 39 plus one in your behalf? The beating has already happened. The blood has already been shed. And it's the new covenant that promises he will be your God and you will be his, not because of your beatings, but because of his son. Man, he's the new temple. He's the new sacrifice. He's the true king. This is why we come to him. And there's a straight line from the word today to this meal. Straight line. And the thing about this table, the thing about this bread and this cup, is it's in our psyche somehow. It's in our broken, sinful psyche that, okay, I've gotta get myself together to come to that table. The only way you come to this table is broken. That's the whole point of this table. Even the one who's presiding over the table says, this is my body broken for you. You don't come put together. You let his breaking cover your breaking. And he says, broken for you, but the whole point is you don't just look at the broken bread. He says, take and eat. Just like that lamb, the only way to be safe from God's judgment is to come underneath it. So you take the bread and you eat. He takes the cup. This is the new covenant poured out in my blood. I will be your God and you will be my people. And I'm gonna keep that promise even if it requires my life. And it did. He says, take and drink. Come under the flood. Come under the flood of the spilled blood of your Lord and drink. Don't you know that your sins are like crimson, but he washes you white as snow? Drink. Followers of Jesus, baptized followers of our Lord, this table is ready for you today. This table is prepared for you today. Listen, Jesus is not dead anymore. He's resurrected from the dead, and he's still throwing dinner parties. And he throws this party, he throws this meal today. This is not a funeral feast. This is a celebration feast because the new exodus has happened. The new deliverance has happened. The new Passover has happened. We take this bread and this cup and we rest as sons and daughters. So as you're ready, come to these tables and receive. If you're not here, if you're here and you're not a Christian, we'd ask you to abstain from this meal, not because we don't want you here, but because the whole point of what's happening is that you come to Jesus before you eat with Jesus. And so we'd love to talk with you about what it would look like to become a Christian across the line of faith and so believers in Jesus, as you're ready, come to these tables and receive.